We're in John chapter 13, beginning this morning in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, but you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am He. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table close to Jesus, So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. It is the word of the Lord, and uh, two things I think we need to understand when, when we hear that is that this was the word of the Lord just before he was going to leave his disciples. The literal word of the Lord before he would leave. And I don't think he spoke idle words. We wouldn't, and certainly Jesus didn't and wouldn't. He had something to tell them. He didn't add any extra, and he didn't subtract anything. He told them exactly what they needed to have before he left. And then we have the Holy Spirit, which has taken the words of Christ and brought them to us in the written word. So in both occasions, God is involved in that. God in the Son, Jesus, who spoke them, and God the Holy Spirit, who brought them together in this printed fashion. And the thing I think we have to understand, they are not idle words. They are not idle. They're not to fill pages for a purpose. And I hope as we're walking through this series that you're taking time to read them and spend time. And I told you, I'm spending lots of time there. But I hope you are as well. I hope you don't just come on Sunday morning to hear it, but you're hearing it along the way. You're looking at God is showing you things out of it about his love, about his desire, which I've said already, I think, to have fullness in your life. We all want fullness. We all want to 
live this Christian life if you are a believer the way it should be lived. We want all that God has for us. That's a good desire to have fullness. And I think Jesus wants his disciples to have fullness. I think that's part of why he wrote this. Last night, we were together in the gathering of the youth. The speaker used the text out of John chapter 10 that says, Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and you might have it abundantly or to the full. The Apostle Paul said, I pray that you will look at the love of God and see the love of God and be filled with all the fullness of God. So both Jesus and the Apostle Paul talked about fullness and how crucial it is that we hear about it and experience it. And I think the desire of your heart, the desire of my heart as a as a believer, as a young believer, I told you was that I wanted fullness. I'd come to experience God in a way that I never had before. And I wanted all that God had for me. And that's, I hope, the desire that you have as a follower of Christ. And I think God also wants to give us that. He wants to give us fullness. I think that's what he wanted to give the disciples. We already said it in John chapter 13, verse 1. I think he tells us where that fullness is found. And he tells us in other places of Scripture. But as we go back to John chapter 13 and verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were with him in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And he did. And I think I think where we find fullness There's a direct correlation between experiencing the fullness of God and understanding what Jesus did here in loving his own to the end. So there's a direct connection between you learning more of the love of God for his people, for those who are willing to follow him in fullness. There's a direct correlation to those two things. If you've been looking for fullness someplace else, let me bring you back to this. This is the way it's connected in Scripture. I think God has a desire that we would experience fullness. But he has also a means by which we'd experience that fullness. And it is connected to the more that we understand the love of God for us, his children. Those who have chosen to accept his offer, as I said last week, of amnesty. Accept the offer of amnesty from the king of the universe who's provided a way that he could administer amnesty to us by his life and death and burial and resurrection. How he paid the price so that he could offer us amnesty. And he wants to give us along with that amnesty fullness. But be careful where you look for it. I've told you that early on I looked in wrong places or I sought to find it in wrong places. I didn't see the connection between fullness and comprehending more and more of the love of God. And now, some 40-some years after that, I come to tell you that is the way to experience it. That's the way that you experience it, the fullness of God. And as I've already said, Jesus in this text here is is trying to convey that to his disciples. He's trying to show them that. 
Look with me in chapter 13, verse 17 for a moment, because here again, he, he uses the idea of fullness. As we look at this story of the washing of the disciples' feet, in the midst of that, in verse 17, he says this, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. If you know these things, what things? Well, certainly, he just has given them an example of washing their feet. But I think what he's also saying is, and knows that after the resurrection, they're going to realize that God washed their feet. God washed their feet. That the love of God is such that he's willing to wash our feet. He's willing to humble himself and become obedient as a man, God, so that he might die for us. You see, and it says, if you know these things, you will do them. I think that's the level of knowing that he's talking about. A level of knowing the love of God will, will compel you to do them. Not just a, not just a knowledge of reading it, but no, really knowing it. Really knowing it on an experiential level will cause you to do it. Now this morning what I want to do is I want to answer the question, why are they blessed? Why, why is that the road to fullness? And why does he call them blessed if they do it? Again, it's all in this context of the love of God. But let me just share three of those things with you this morning, which I think he's saying when he's saying blessed. Why they're blessed. Why they're blessed because of this, if they do it. First of all, they're blessed if they do it because in doing it, They're giving evidence that they really know it, that they've really experienced it. Not just somebody telling them, but they've experienced it in their own life. They have experienced this love, and it's evidenced in the fact that in order for them to wash other people's feet, in order for them to follow the example of Jesus, they must humble themselves. And if you're really going to know the love of God, and evidence that you do know the love of God is humility. The only way you will experience it, the only way that, that you will experience the love of God at the level of moving you from just knowing it in your head to doing it is if it humbles you. In fact, the way to Christ is a way of humility. You must humble yourself. You must look away from yourself and look to him and what he's accomplished and what he's provided. And so humility, true humility, humility that then moves to wash the feet of others, to serve other people, only comes when you have experienced, first of all, an understanding of the love of God. You won't do it in the ways and to the degrees to which he's talking about here, except you are beginning to see. You're beginning to see the love of God for you. In our existence statement, we say that we magnify Jesus Christ so people might see. The entry place into that and evidence of that is humility. And so the reason they're blessed is because they're seeing. They wouldn't do it except they're seeing. They're seeing the love of God. They've begun to see it. Not all of it. They haven't experienced it all, but they've begun to experience it. Contrast that with Judas. He didn't. 
Judas in this experience, in this situation, did not. He was the one of the twelve whom Jesus washed his feet, but he did not see. Evidence of that is he went out and he betrayed Jesus. Many people he be- believe he betrayed Jesus to get Jesus to do something, to set up his kingdom. He, he may have had a motive that he wanted to force Jesus out of, out of the shadows. But the bottom line is, it was his agenda. He wanted his way, and he wanted it done his way. And one of the things that, that changes when we begin to see the love of God is we begin to give up our own agenda, which is me. My agenda before I begin to see is me. I may guise it. I may try to hide it. I may try to fool you. But outside of coming to see the love of God in Christ and experiencing it, my agenda is about me. No matter how good it may look on the surface, underneath it, it's about me. That's the difference. That's the second thing I want to talk about this morning is that that why they are blessed, first of all, is because it's evidence that they are seeing because you, you, you don't wash people's feet to this degree and to this level and this way unless you're seeing. But the second thing that we find happens in all of this is that they are experiencing growing freedom from sin. And the ultimate sin is me. It's about me. You see, Judas, though he tried to fool himself, he may have tried to convince himself, I'm, I'm doing something good for Jesus. His agenda was Judas. It wasn't Jesus. And sometimes we can make people around us think that our agenda is something else. But outside of seeing, it's about us. And the only thing that will free you from you is seeing the love of God. Really seeing it. Really seeing it in our lives. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22 for a minute. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If not, just listen carefully. This is, this is the disciples. This is all 12 of the disciples. At the same point they were at in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, we don't hear this story. But in Luke chapter 22, we do hear this story. You see the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Passover feast there in verses 14 through 23. Jesus is, is having the Passover dinner. But then down in verse 24, after all of that, and it was in that context that he washed the disciples' feet. But somewhere in that evening, probably even as they were getting their feet washed, this occurred. It said in verse 24 that a dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. What was happening? I think it adds to the thing that I talked about in our prayer time, that after the resurrection, the realization that God washed their feet, and and. And they must have thought, God washed my feet. And this is what we were arguing about. Who is the greatest? Who's the greatest among us? Jesus is on his way to, to the cross. 
in just a few hours. And he's been with these disciples for three years now. And what are they doing in the end but arguing about who's the greatest? You see, not only are they blessed if they do it because it's evidence that they're comprehending the love of Christ. They're seeing. But it also are blessed because in doing it is evidence that they're being freed from the tyranny of themselves. They weren't ready for this, really, here. They were still arguing. They were still conferring. But after the resurrection, it changed. After the resurrection, this whole dispute about who is the greatest among us fell away from them. And it should fall away from us. Freedom from sin is freedom from preoccupation with ourselves. Freedom from sin is a growing freedom from the preoccupation of me and everything running through me. We live in a generation today that constantly takes its temperature. And one of the things that the gospel does is it frees us from taking our temperature. It frees us from running everything through us first. And that's why we're blessed. There's no greater freedom than that freedom, to not have the freedom of always having it come through me. Always about me in my life. I hope this morning that you know that blessedness. You know the blessedness, first of all, of seeing. And you're seeing as you see that, and as you move that God is freeing you from that tyranny of yourself, that more and more, more and more, you're asking, what's going on in my heart? That's the way we couch it here. That's what we, the way we've begun to say it in our congregation is, what's going on in my, my heart? That's one of the things that God, I think, begins to do to us, to free us from the tyranny of ourselves. We begin to see our motives And we begin to see how tainted our motives can be and we begin to live in repentance much more often about our hearts and about what's going on in our hearts. The third thing that I think they were blessed in, they were blessed in in the fact that they were giving evidence that they were seeing, they were being freed from themselves. And then thirdly, thirdly they were blessed because if we're willing to do that, because of seeing the love of Christ and beginning to be encounter the love of Christ and experience it in our lives, there's a willingness within us. There becomes a willingness within us, a growing willingness within us to do hard things. The disciples, if they were willing to wash feet, would be evidence that they're willing to do hard things. They're willing to do costly things. They're willing to do it when nobody else is looking and watching. Again, that only happens from a growing comprehension, I think, of the love of Christ. It's interesting today that we live in a, in a time when, when different segments of our population gets labeled differently. For instance, uh, the baby boomers and then the Gen X and other kinds of ways that if you're born within a certain period of time, you're labeled this. But one of the labels that's there today, my children um, are part of that generation So that would be the context. But anyone born after 1980 is today called a millennial. If if you were born after 1980, you are a millennial. 
And one of the things about the millennial generation is that um, they they seem as a group to be concerned about them those that are marginalized in our society. They have a they seem to have a a propensity to 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 look and to see those in society that are marginalized and move toward them. They also have a tendency to move towards simplicity. That's part of a generalization. Certainly there's exceptions to that. But in general, they move toward marginalized people and they move toward simplicity. Don't have as much stuff, maybe, is the way it would manifest itself. That's, that's how the millennials in general are wired to do that. Now the question is, why? Just this week, or a couple weeks ago, I think it was, I, I was listening to a commentator about the millennial generation. He said something interesting to me, because I think it's true. They do move to the marginalized more than other generations have done. They do move toward simplicity more than other general generations have done. But he made this statement. He said, and one of the characteristics, by the way, of baby boomers is that they're pretty selfish. So baby boomers, I would be baby boomer. I would be the father of millennial generation. They tend to, to, to view us as baby boomers as somewhat selfish and, and uh, react to that. But this was his statement, this particular person. Whether he's right or wrong, I think there's some truth in it. He said this, that millennials, in fact, there's lots of truth in this. Millennials are just as selfish as baby boomers, which I think is true. Outside of Christ, they are. There's no difference. If we're outside of Christ, I've already said that that the thing that changes it is we begin to embrace Christ and begin to see the love of Christ. That's the thing that moves us from self-orientation, from being centered around ourselves, to moving out in, in example of washing feet. But this is the statement. They're just as selfish as baby boomers, but the reason that they move toward the marginalized, the reason that they are about simplicity is an economic reason. In other words, economics, as they've grown up, have not been very good. And so his contention is that if economics were different, they would be different. But what has happened and what his implications of that is, in other words, because they couldn't have it, they decided they wouldn't have it. And so they found another way to find an identity And it's really not about so much a heart thing as it is an economic thing. It's an interesting observation. Now, it's probably too general. It's probably too wide a brush to paint with. But the truth of the matter, as I've already said, is outside of Christ, they're just as selfish as baby boomers outside of Christ. There's no difference in that. They're just as selfish. Their hearts are still self-oriented. So, so even though people outside of Christ move toward the marginalized, they move toward simplicity, in their heart, the same kinds of things are going on. Their hearts are the issue. It's not what the outward appearance is, but the heart. So what causes them to move to that? One of the things in a general terms is it happens in every generation. My generation did it. I was of the baby boomer generation, but I rose up in the Vietnam War era, and there was all kinds of people in my generation who were angry 
at the government and angry at stuff and trying to find their identity. And many of those people were in the war movement. I wasn't part of that, or the anti-war movement. I wasn't part of that. But but they're, they're always in every generation. The point is every generation tries to find its own identity. And though they may move toward things that aren't bad in themselves, I mean, it's not bad to be for the marginalized. It's not bad to move toward simplicity. But what is the motive of that? Is the motive of that that we're somehow reacting to another generation and we're trying to find our own identity? My contention is that the only motive, the only motive that will really help us to move to the marginalized is the gospel long term. Long term. One of the interesting things about the baby boomers and many of that whole anti-war movement, if you were part of that, is many of those who were anti-establishment back then are now the establishment of today. Many of those who back then would have been into to, to experiencing drugs and experimenting with drugs then are now the establishment today. It's why so many of my generation will come out and and uh, now even more than ever, because public figures are doing, will talk about their experiencing and dabbling in marijuana. But you see, there was a point at which they were anti. And some of those things weren't all wrong, probably, they were responding against. But the point is, what's the heart motive? What's, what's driving their heart? What's moving their heart? And my contention is it, is, it is only the gospel that will move our hearts long term. That's why there's a blessedness about it. It's not a fad. It's not a generational thing. It's not, it's not just being different for the sake of being different or being rebellious for the sake of being rebellious. So, you know, every generation has its flaws. It's not faddish. It's not faddish. Another example, let me give you another illustration of this, of, of how that works and how that happens. I, another time I was listening, this time I think it was on the radio, but I was listening to a talk show person late at night trying to stay awake, driving, as I remember. But this particular person on the radio is, um, is proposing, again, that we would move toward the marginalized, that we would help the poor, and reach out to the poor. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the call-in person turns it on his head with this individual and says, you have substantial wealth, and, and begins to attack what seems to be hypocrisy in this man's life of moving toward the poor. One of the things I heard earlier, which was interesting in that conversation, is they were telling where his offices were located. The offices of this particular talk show person's offices were in the highest real estate in our nation, just a block away from Times Square. And all of a sudden, he realizes where this guy is taking this conversation. And he responds back to him and says, well, I've given half of my money away to the poor. Well, maybe he has. And it's not about the amount he has left necessarily. But, what I'm saying about that is sometimes we begin to get into faddish kinds of things and we move toward what the culture is moving toward. And right now there is a move in our culture toward the marginalized, which is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. We need to have that kind of compassion. 
But what's motivating it? Is it just the latest fad? Is it just the latest passing fancy? When Jesus said, blessed are you, blessed are you who know these things and do them, he wasn't talking about doing them as a fad. He wasn't talking about doing them so somebody else could see it. He was talking about doing it because your heart's gotten messed up, because you're compelled to do it, because inside of you, you are marching to a different drummer. The Holy Spirit is messing with your life and won't allow you to not do it, to not reach out to people, to not move toward people, to not serve other people. You see, the whole connotation here is that we're blessed. We're blessed as we see and as we do. We're blessed because it, it's coming against the problem of our hearts. That's why they were blessed, because we're wired to be selfish. And as much as we try to paint on the outside another picture, sometimes our hearts betray us. So the only thing that can really deal with your heart is the gospel, is seeing the love of God in Christ and seeing it more and more and more. And finally, this is where I want to end this morning. This is where you sustain it. This is how it gets sustained. I want you to look back with me at the book of John now and, and just for a moment, John chapter 13. I want, I want you to look because he spends a considerable amount of time talking about Judas, about the fact that Judas is going to betray him. And so you have to ask the question, why does Jesus do this in this context? Why does he talk about Judas so much? Certainly, there's some um, example in the fact that J- Jesus was willing to wash Judas's feet to move toward Judas, even though he knew Judas was going to betray him. But I think it's more than that. Look at what it says in verse 18. Um, where he says, he begins to turn and he says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. This is, this is what you want to catch. The scripture will be fulfilled. What scripture? Psalm 51, specifically 51 and verse 9, or excuse me, 41 and verse 9. And it says this, he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. So Jesus is telling this, So that scripture will be fulfilled for a purpose. And the purpose is in verse 19. I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. What was Jesus doing to his disciples here? What was he helping them? How was he trying to bless them? He was blessing them by showing them the truth of scripture. That scripture could be relied upon. Scripture could be trusted. You see, because again, these disciples are not in a very good place. They've been arguing. They've been bickering. Jesus washes their feet. In just a few hours, they're going to scatter all over the place. But then Jesus is going to rise from the dead and the resurrection is going to happen. And God is going to confirm that Jesus did it all perfectly and well. And he's pleased with that sacrifice. And then they're going to come back. And they're going to begin to follow him. And what they need to know more than anything, 
What they need to know more than anything is that Jesus can be trusted. That God can be trusted. And his word can be trusted. And that his word is the secret to fullness. Trusting his word is the secret to fullness. I started this out by saying it's a good desire to desire fullness. I also said that the secret or the connection to fullness is a connection to seeing and comprehending the love of God. And where do we most see the love of God revealed to us? Where? But in the scripture. If you want to be full, you need to be a person of this book. You must be a person of this book. If this book has little to do with your life, you will not experience fullness. If the scripture and the truth of scripture is not, is not in your life, any place, you are not going to experience fullness. The means by which God causes us to experience fullness are the ways in which he continues to show to us the truth of Scripture. The truth of Scripture. The truth of what he said. The truth of his word. The Holy Spirit takes the word, the truth of the word, and uses that to create fullness in our life. Let me illustrate that. I'm going to close. I think that's what happened on the road to Emmaus. Remember last week we talked about that? Jesus is risen from the dead. He, he's, he's, he comes along. There's two other disciples that are walking along a road to Emmaus. Jesus walks up and joins them. And what, what Jesus does then, they don't recognize him. And what Jesus does for the next few minutes is he basically goes back and, and shows them how, how the scripture has been fulfilled in him, although they don't know it's him. He just goes from account to account to account, connecting the dots of scripture about the gospel and about what Jesus came to do and what he's accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection and all of that. That's what he does without them recognizing him. And then, finally, when he breaks bread with them, their eyes are open to see that it was Jesus with them. Then he leaves. He's gone. But their response is this. As we walked with him, as we walked with him, and what's he doing but taking scripture and showing the truth of it to them. And so it says, as we walked with him, our, were not our hearts strangely warmed? Were they not warmed? Wasn't there something that, a sense of being in that and hearing the scripture that warmed our hearts. What is that? What is that warming? My contention is that warming is fullness. Is fullness. Not as full as we can get because we can continue to see that. We can continue to have that happen as we're in the scriptures. As God takes the word, the Holy Spirit takes the word and applies the truth of it to our hearts. But that is the path to warmness. And the, the, the tragedy the tragedy is Satan will try to get you in your desire for fullness to run every place else but there. You'll run every place else for there for fullness. Early on in my Christian life, I ran lots of places, sincerely ran lots of places for fullness. But fullness only comes there. I think that's why Jesus made the point to, to, to drive it in 
that Jesus or Judas was going to betray him so that they would learn to trust him and his word and be led by it and, and, and experience the fullness of it. This morning I say to you, is, is that where you go to get fullness? Do you, do you know what it is? Do you know what it is to read the scripture and to, to have your heart strengthened by it, by means of the Holy Spirit, opening your eyes to see Jesus in the text, to see the gospel in the text. That's the road to fullness. That's the way to get there. And so it beckons us, pick up our Bibles. Pick up our Bibles. Make our Bibles as important as they ought to be. In the center where they ought to be, the Word of God. We're going to sing together this song that we sang already, Be Thou My Vision, but the second verse of that says, Be Thou My Wisdom and Thy My True Word. Let's stand as we close. Be Thou My Vision O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that Thou art. Thou my best thought by day or by night, waking or sleeping, Thy presence, my light. Be Thou my wisdom, and Thou my true word. I ever with Thee, and Thou with me. Thy true Son, Thou in me dwelling, and I with Thee one. Together, Father, we pray that You will help us to know the reality of what Jesus spoke to those disciples. Blessed are You if You do it if you do it, which means we're seeing more of the love of Christ that is compelling us, as Paul said. The love of Christ compels us to move toward people and serve people, not as something that's a fad or short-term, but that the tenor of our lives would be willingness to serve others, willingness to humble ourselves, And all the time, Lord, that the fuel for that, the fuel for that would be your word. Your word, most specifically, the gospel. Would fuel us and and cause us, Father, to serve our world for the name of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.